This is Takeaway Only, a podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. I'm Howie Kahn, and these are the stories of the people who take care of you. Today's guest is Gabriel Stolman, founder of Happy Cooking Hospitality. Happy Cooking has nine concepts in New York City. That's a lot of real estate, and it presents a serious landlord problem during a time when restaurants cannot fully operate. It's also a problem about power and ultimately about justice. Coming up, Gabriel lays out the case for emergency legislation and real estate relief. We're back tomorrow with an all-new guest. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Stay tuned now for Gabriel. My guest today on Takeaway Only is Gabriel Stolman uh, from Jeffrey's Grocery, Joseph Leonard, Bar Sardine, Fairfax, Fedora, Simon and the Whale, the Jones. Hi. Hey. How you doing? Thanks for having me on, Howie. Thank you for being here. That's a lot of restaurants to be responsible for, period. Um, and probably seems like three times as many restaurants to be responsible for during COVID-19. What are you doing to keep everybody uh, afloat and keeping people's spirits up? It's a damn fine question. It feels almost existential at this point. Um, I would say that we've, I've been pretty, pretty busy uh, since all of this went down. And when I think about you know, what my days are spent doing, um, I kind of put them into four circles of, of where my time is spent. Uh, one circle is what are we doing to take care of our teammates and our colleagues that we no longer get to work with that are unemployed. Uh, another call, another circle is what are we doing as citizens and members of society to try to lend a helping hand and have a positive impact on this moment and to be leaders. Uh, a third area is what are we doing that pulls a double double purpose of how can we benefit immediately our community? Um, whereas the second circle is you know more about first responders and people that are actually helping attack this problem. How do we serve our community? And if we can serve our community in a way that also helps serve our team. And then the final circle you know, of this Venn diagram is thinking about the future and uh, managing uh, the present for a strategy that will, ho- hopefully there is a future of our restaurants. And um, what are we doing to proactively think about what that looks like and how it'll work? I like your four circle approach. It's, it's uh, nice and organized. One of the things uh, that you've been doing is you opened a literal grocery at, at Jeffrey's Grocery. Tell me about the evolution of, of that idea. It, it somehow manages to look uh, fun and delicious even, even now. Well, thank you. Um, you know, Jeffrey's Grocery, the irony of it is it's in many ways a concept come full circle. Uh, Jeffrey's Grocery is approaching 10 years old. And when we originally opened it, you know, most people think I just thought of the name Jeffrey's Grocery because I thought it was a cute name. And I mean, I, I do think that it's a good name, but 
when we opened it originally 10 years ago, there was a grocery component to it. Uh, it started off, you know, it's about a 800 square foot space. And we took the front half of it originally, and we made it a little mom and pop grocery shop here in the West Village. We offered things like fresh produce, uh, meat, fish, dairy, uh, and dry goods. And then the back half of Jeffrey's Grocery was an oyster bar with sandwiches and salads. Fast forward, uh, the grocery portion 10 years ago was an utter failure. Um, nobody was really interested in buying groceries. Everybody commented about how beautiful it looked, but nobody bought anything. Meanwhile, the Oyster Bar was running hour, two hour long wait lists. And I had half of my square footage doing nothing. So we made the decision at around the end of the first year of Jeffrey's Grocery to get rid of the grocery, which was not working, and expand the Oyster Bar, which was working. And for the last nine years, and Jeffrey's Grocery has just been a full restaurant. And it's been our seafood and oyster bar of, of our family of restaurants. And now in a like curious and odd and you know, somewhat even hilarious and ironic turn of events, it is now a full-blown grocery store and not an oyster bar at all. I mean, it's like, you can't make this shit up. Um, and what we have done to, to do that is try to identify, I think, what are some of the challenges or stress points or frustrations that people are facing now in the beginning of month three of quarantine. And I think... There are frustrations that people face with going grocery shopping, being waiting in lines for a long time, and aisles being picked through. I think that there are frustrations that people face with trying to buy groceries online, which is not adequate available delivery windows. Um, so you have these frustrations of waiting in line, um, not being able to get delivery windows, which, by the way, is really upper-class problems like my Whole Foods, I can't get at a convenient time for me, is like not real problems. And I want to acknowledge that people that are stressing about that need to check themselves. Like, you can get groceries delivered, you're winning. Right? Um, so perspective is very important. Um, but, uh, and, then, and then lastly, I think when all of this started, I think there was a lot of people that jumped really like into the deep end of cooking. And you saw this all over social media and everybody was like, look at these huge meals I'm cooking. And everybody like had this energy and this enthusiasm to cook from home. And boy, oh boy, has that tapered off. And people are not posting all of the breads that they're making and all of those. It's like the everybody's on the downside of that roller coaster. And I think people got to a point of exhaustion of cooking from scratch, all of these meals. And I think what people are looking for is, all right, I don't want to just order delivery from my restaurants. And I do that sometimes, but I don't want to do that every day. Um, and 
I want to cook, but I would like to have some meals that don't take me two hours to prep and produce. And this is the entry point of Jeffrey's Grocery. To me, we looked at Jeffrey's Groceries. How do we approach these stress points? So I think, you know, you don't need to wait in line for us. We have available product. And we are looking at it as how can we empower you to be a cook at home, but be, we can be your prep cook. We can be your sous chef. Like we'll do a lot. We'll clean the produce. We'll prep it. We'll cook it. We'll break it down. And how do we allow you to make restaurant quality food without needing to pull your knife out? Like you don't need to cut anything. You don't need to break anything down. Make it, you know, two, three step cooking. And I think that has, I think, an entry point for many of like, ah, you're, I'm, I'm able to cook dinner at home and you've just made it a lot easier. And it's not like, you know, microwave dinners. It's, you know, get the spatchcocked organic chicken that we broke down for you and we already put the herbed butter under the skin and we made the romesco. You don't need to buy all the ingredients and like we're making homemade romesco, not the one that's been on the shelf for three months. And uh, we've got the broccoli robbed. We cleaned it. We cooked it. All you need to do is roast, reheat, serve, and you've got a restaurant dinner. So I think that so far, you know, we're three weeks in and um, the feedback has been great. Is that what you're eating at home? Uh, it is a lot of what I'm eating at home, for sure. I would say uh, <laughs> I actually uh, nudged my wife recently when she went and got a bunch of groceries somewhere else. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, why did you buy groceries somewhere else? <laughs> we have one. And she, and, and she <laughs> we said, have one, I, right. She's like, I didn't want to bother you. You know, I was out with the kids, you know, I needed, you know, and look, we don't have everything at the grocery store. She was like, I needed to get the juice boxes for the boys and I needed graham crackers for Lionel. I was like, All right. But I know, I know, I know you, I know now you're thinking about how do I make juice boxes and how do we do graham crackers? <laughs> Actually, no, I'm not thinking, you know, I would say a different version of me would have. What's been interesting is... Uh, we started with a much narrower menu and then we probably expanded it by like 30%. And then we were about to expand it again. And I stopped us and I said, no, my mindset may be wrong is I do not think we should expand our offerings to be more and more and more. I think we should just rotate it all the time. And I don't think it's about we need 100 things to offer. I think it's that we need 30 things that change every week. Yeah, I, I think we're definitely going to be moving into a phase of, of reduced menus. It's not quite minimalism what we're going to be seeing, but I think offerings everywhere are going to have to be streamlined for a variety of reasons, from supply chain to sanity. Thousand percent. Also, I think the reality is we don't need a hundred options. Like you don't need to go to a restaurant and there don't need to be 14 appetizers and 12 entrees and six sides. It's like, we've gotten so used as a culture and a society of 
Um, I have so many choices. And in order to do that, you know, we need to buy more variety. We need to prep more different things. And it's like labor is going to be a problem. I, I think it's going to, I, I don't think the issue is going to be as much supply chain as much as I think it's going to be we need to manage labor and covers. And so what makes more sense is for me to have a smaller, tighter menu and change it more often. And and that's what it is. I can manage uh, four appetizers and four entrees with fewer people, which we're going to have to do. Yeah. I also think there's going to be a hospitality and in, in simplicity in a, in a way. Like, I don't even know if my brain is equipped to handle a menu with like many, many choices. I might like break down and cry because I can't make another decision in another day. Like, I just want someone to like promise me it'll be there and it'll be delicious. And I don't have to think much about it because I'm already thinking about so many other things. I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I mean, look, I, the restaurant that I probably dined at the most number of visits that is not mine in 2019 was Pestis. The new Pestis, I, it's in my neighborhood. It's like walking distance to home is one reason. Uh, another reason is it's delicious. Uh, another reason is it serves breakfast, lunch, dinner, and brunch. So there are that many more meal periods with which I can go with the kids and with Gina. And it's got a huge menu. I'll tell you what, though, if they reopened with a menu that only had a third, I'd be just as fine. Yeah, same. I just want it to be the classics. Offer me the steak frites, offer me the mussels, have the pate, have the escargot, like have the frisée au lardon, like I'm good. (laughs) Totally, totally agree. You wrote a a really gut-wrenching open letter that you posted on Eater last week, and it was to uh, a New York City council member. Um, and a state senator, um, and it was about getting some some relief so you do not go bankrupt paying for the leases of your restaurant, so you are not personally responsible for things that have affected your business because of an unpredictable pandemic. Um, you got a lot of great uh, attention because of, of that letter. Has there been any action taken? Has that bill going anywhere? Is it moving? Uh Yes. Yes to uh, a lot of things. Uh, only minor correction is I didn't post my letter on Eater. Eater got a copy of it without my permission. And Eater was going to post it with or without my feelings on the matter. Um, and they said so much to me. They were like, we got a copy of this. We're going to post it. Would you like to comment? And in that context, I was like, well, if you're going to post, you're posting, right? Yes, we're posting. Okay, then fuck it. Talk to me. (laughs) And in the end, um, they ended up posting the whole letter. And I would say I'm I'm happy they did. Because as you said, it it got a lot of traction that I was, it was never my intention. So my, when I wrote the letter, I never wrote it from a point of view of, I want to share this. I didn't write an op-ed. I wrote a letter to Johnson and DeHoyleman. I was like, here's my feelings about my situation. I'm concerned. And yes, so it's gotten a lot of traction. Now to some of the, the, the nodes of it. Yes, there is a, 
a part of all commercial leases in the city of personal guarantees. And the reality is personal guarantees are bullish and darn right barbarian under normal healthy circumstances. Like I don't have to personally guarantee my apartment lease. Like why do I have to personally guarantee a commercial lease? Um, I understand the landlord's perspective is if you're defaulting, we want to be able to um, have actions against you. And I just think that there need there needs to be more of a middle ground because as it stands, there are these provisions called good guy clauses, which mandate the number of months of notice you are required to give your landlord. And during that notice period, you have to pay all of that rent. And then your landlord also gets to keep your security deposit, which for everyone out there that's been a residential renter, if you fulfill the obligations of your last month's rent, you get your security back. Why do landlords, why do I have to give a landlord four to six months notice, pay that rent, and you keep my security? This is backwards, especially with commercial leases. Security is often three months, unlike residential one month. So you can keep three months of security, and I got to pay you for four to six months. Now, I think these things are crazy under normal circumstances, but it's the rules of the game. We all have to play it, so we sign these things anyways because nobody ever imagined a circumstance like this. And generations never imagined a circumstance like this. This isn't like, oh, well, Gabe, you should have thought about that. No, no, nobody, nobody thought of this, right? It's clearly leveled the globe, all right? So we now have the situation of, I'm not allowed to have my restaurants open by government mandate. Not because I fucked up, not because I was a bad operator. So all I'm saying is, if I'm not able to come back from this at all, then you need to not hold me personally liable. If I'm able to come back from this and I cannot sustain because occupancy limitations, uh, diners' concerns and fears, um, less discretionary income, you name it, on and on and on, any number of reasons why my revenue would be materially uh, declined that would then make sustainability in jeopardy. If I'm not able to sustain, don't hold me personally liable. So I think that these are, you know, not unreasonable requests on my part. Now, it has gotten a lot of traction. Um, it is to be voted on tomorrow at city council. It is widely expected to pass. Tomorrow, in the context of, of listening to this podcast, tomorrow is May 13th. So by the time this comes out, it will have hopefully passed. Bingo. Um, so it, it is to be voted on tomorrow, May 13th, by city council. Then after city council votes on it, it goes to de Blasio's desk. And de Blasio has three choices of what to do with it. One is veto. Nobody believes he's going to veto it to date in the entire of his terms as mayor, he has not vetoed a single bill that city council passed, right? Uh, another option is he can sign it into law immediately. And a third option is he can sit on it for 30 days. And if he neither signs it nor vetoes it, at the end of 30 days, it becomes law. Okay. So it is widely believed that tomorrow, May 13th, city council will approve it. 
and then either de Blasio will sign it into law or he'll sit on it for 30 days. I think it is widely believed that he will sit on it for 30 days, which is just a lazy way of making it law. Right. It's, he doesn't have to engage in the politics of, of approval. It's kind of like the passive aggressive approach to showing 100%. what your beliefs are. Yeah, it's, very, conven- very, very convenient. But he seems to be, I mean, he's, he, he had, I know he had a call with many restaurateurs last week that yeah. people seem to be happy with. Yeah, I mean, look, convenient for him, inconvenient for all of us that are trying to have conversations with our landlords. Right. Like, if you, if you are okay with it being law, then just sign it so that we can start our conversations. Yeah. Now, there is a problem with the bill that is to be voted on tomorrow and to the call last week that you're alluding to. So, some of the things that came out of last week's call are some opinions that the city and its restaurants will not reopen potentially until Labor Day. Right. All right. And apparently, those are some of the things that came out of last week's call is this notion of Labor Day is a safe time when we'll be reopening schools and we can reopen dining restaurants. All right. And, and by the way, that's for New York City. Obviously, Cuomo came up with his 10 regions and the, um, all the different uh, metrics that need to be met and the four phases. So I believe that starting next week, May 15th, three regions are greenlit to begin phase one and so on and so forth. So it's New York City is going to be the last region to start phase one, understandably so. And restaurants are phase three. So it is through that conversation, if there are 10 regions and if there are seven metrics and if there are four phases, restaurants might be Labor Day. Now, let's get back to this Bill 1932 that's with City Council. Bill 1932, as it currently sits with City Council, has been diluted by... As bills, as as happens with, with bills. As bills happen, it's been diluted by... What interested parties? Landlords. Okay. Shocking. And the dilution has been to put a final date with which you can um, use this exclusion. So what the bill is, the bill that's currently in front of city council is to remove personal liability for just this whole conversation that we've been having. That if your business fails or closes or doesn't make it, your landlord cannot hold you personal liable. Amen. This is a blessing. We need this bill. Okay, now the dilution has been so long as you exercise this right by September 30th. If you exercise this right on October 1st, you can be held personally liable, good guy clause, personal guarantee back into effect. Why does this matter? If we do not open until Labor Day, September 5th, 6th, 7th, you're telling me I've got less than four weeks from opening to determine if I can make this work or not. That's kind of, to a large extent, defeating a lot of what I want out of this. Now, it's helping anybody who makes the decision to never come back. So the the bill will help people for sure, but it's not helping everyone to the best it can. If you choose to close your restaurant now, like Pegu Club or like Lucky Strike or like Gem Spa, great. This passing of this bill will prevent your landlord from holding you personally liable, amen. Everybody else who closes before September 30th, amen. But if I don't open until September 7th and I want to give it a go, in theory, I may not know until January 1st if this worked or not. 
Like I'm going to try. And as far as I'm concerned, trying is more than three weeks. Like I'm going to give it a run for a few months until I am grasping and clawing at the table and saying, I can't hold on any longer. I got to throw in the towel. That is a, a, a titanically heavy set of dice to have to roll. Yeah. So I got to either make the decision prematurely or I'm back where I'm at now. It's fucked. It's like, thank you, kind of. Thank you, sort of. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Maybe. I mean, I, I do wonder if, you know, that four week period is is a negotiating point and, and someone's supposed to say we need 16 weeks. You know, I, I wonder if, if that's the, the course that it goes on. But yeah, I mean, it's fucked. And it also makes me wonder what kind of city New York's going to be in, in the future, because if independent restaurants start feeling like they can't ever sign leases to begin with, we're, we're living in a city of of McDonald's and Dwayne Reed and ATM machines and and, uh, you know, nothing, nothing. Yep. Yep. You know, I mean, enough with landlords, like having all the leverage you need landlords. You need us to get you rich banks. You need landlords for you to get rich. You're already fatter than both of us. Like, like, like don't give, give me enough life to survive. Give you enough life to survive. That's right give you enough life to survive so you are waiting you're wait. you're waiting for for tomorrow yeah i mean again ish like i i expect so i mean i'm not even waiting because i expect it to get passed by city council and then i expect de blasio to sit on it for 30 days and then you have this other and then you have this other hurdle to think about and then i got this other lack of information i don't know when i'm opening Right. So basically every restaurateur in New York City, regardless of what happens with this bill, is still going to have to wonder if it's a scenario that actually helps them or hurts them because of who knows. I mean, New York City may as well be another planet right now in terms of action plans, in terms of reopening dates. What happens in New York City doesn't really apply to anywhere else in the country right now. It's totally unique. Uh, anywhere in the globe. Like we've got more deaths than many countries in New York City. Yeah, we did a great. We did it. We did a great job. Yeah, I mean, it's it, look. It's you get, get uh, getting started on this is so unhealthy because you you sit there and you go, all right, well, let's look at a country right here on our continent, Canada. They're right there. Way less cases, way less deaths. Is it because of temperature? Absolutely not. Is it because they don't have as many people? That's not why. It's because here in our country, we've decided, let every state make their own rules about it. And every other country said, we're just going to have some administration from the top determine how the country addresses the issue. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a huge leadership vacuum. And, and you're right, it is an incredibly unhealthy path for, for us to go down. Um, we're not going to go down it. We're going right. to, I'm going to change the subject because we're running Great. out of time anyways. Um, I, I want to talk to you about kind of creativity in, in, in general for a minute. And if, if you feel like now this is, you know, an interesting moment for you to throw all the wildest, most ambitious ideas you've ever had at the wall and, and just kind of see what sticks. Yes and no. I would not frame it like that. I don't think now is the time to throw the, generally the wildest ideas that I have are the riskiest. So no, I don't think now is the time to be going for the riskiest ideas. I do believe very much in um, 
blank canvas thinking under normal circumstances. And it is something that it, it is, it is an operational way that I've always lived by, which is you got something that's working. You should still be willing to look at it like a blank canvas. You know, what is there another way of doing it? So I do very much believe that, um, before all of this, when all of the restaurants are up and running and serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's like having the Titanic, right? You've got a ship and how, I love that, right? And, uh, and, and how do you turn a huge ship? It's very difficult. It's not the same as turning a bicycle, right? And so whenever we wanna create like major shifts and major changes, and we want to come up with new systems, right? And we want to uh, invent new protocols and we want to say, hey, let's have a whole new way that we're doing staff training. Let's have a whole new way that we're doing white education. Let's have a whole new way that we're uh, doing culture initiatives, right? We, let, let's uh, create this thing. It's hard to do when the, the ocean liner is moving. Now, everything's at bay. Everything's docked. This is an opportunity to look at all of those kind of um, projects and all of those things that you want to do all year over years that constantly get moved to the back burner. And it's just a laundry list of like, I would love to do that, but I had to move it to the back burner. We have certainly been looking at that list and being like, all right, can we've wanted to migrate all like every one of the restaurants has its own Dropbox. And it's like, can we have a consolidated like <laughs> file right. sharing system? Yeah. We will when we reopen. Like, <laughs> because everything was shut down and stopped and nobody needed the files for the last two months, we can finally move everything into one clean cloud. That's an example of like the kind of projects that will have material improvements. Um, I do think from a creative standpoint, I, I'm thinking about operations differently within our existing operations. Like how do we, how do we reopen differently more than, is there this whole other like idea that I want to do? Um, because I don't think right now is the time within the landscape of restaurants for me um, that like I want to come up, oh, this new restaurant idea that I never did, let me do it now. I think there's a part of this is like, what's going to survive? And then once we figure that out, and once we make some decisions on what survives, then we can go from there. But like, there needs to be some understanding of what the new system is. Do I have nine restaurants at the end of this? Or do I have a different amount? I, I don't yet know. That answer lies very heavily in conversations with landlords about new rent structures. It lies very heavily with Congress in changing the legislation around the PPP and how the money's allowed to be used. And those will determine how many restaurants survive, you know? Um, are two things out of my control. And then the third thing that's not in my control is diner habits and behaviors. Like, you know, how do people want to eat? That I'm the least concerned about because I think people are going to always want to eat in New York. But do I have the ability to subsidize my payroll and my rent? 
for more than eight weeks? And do I have a landlord who's okay with giving me a percentage rent deal when I only have 50% of my seats? <sighs> heavy. It's all, it's, all real, it's all really heavy. You know, I, I often think about uh, you in, in college. Your college roommate was Virgil Abloh. Um, and I just kind of think about the the creative muscle and, and powers in in that room. He's you know the uh, artistic director of of Louis Vuitton and fashion's also being devastated by this. Have you guys talked? We have. What you comes know, out of those conversations? He uh, illuminated um, something to me. You know, I was we were talking about how it's affecting both of us and. It's very clear when my business is brick and mortar restaurants and, and table. Like he, oh, you're shut down. You, you must be getting fucked. But you know, fashion. So many people buy their stuff online, anyways. I was curious, and I was asking him, how's it impacting you? And I think something that he shared with me that I, I thought he parsed well, was. People buy clothes to go to the restaurant and the bar and the nightclub and be seen in them. And if nobody's going out to the restaurants and the bars and the nightclubs, and if you don't have a reason to go to this spring's fashion shows and this fall's fashion shows because they're all canceled, then you're reevaluating, do I need that pair of jeans? You didn't need the pair of jeans before, but you were going to buy them because you wanted to be fly or fresh in them for we dress people want to lie to themselves when they say they dress for themselves that's maybe for a few most of us dress for everyone else right and that's okay like i love fashion like i guarantee you ralph Lauren would say that and dior would say that and the deceased lagerfeld and coco chanel like this we dress for others yes yeah you dress for yourself a little bit but you dress for others and so him explaining to me like with no restaurants and bars and fashion shows and museums to go to, you're reevaluating about buying that for a different reason than ever before. I don't need to buy that sunglasses, this season's sneakers, because I don't have anybody to show it to. And I was like, it was an aha moment for me. And I was like, whoa. I just thought people would be buying less fashion because they lost their job. And he's like, dude, I sell to rich people anyways. I mean, he didn't say that. I'm like, you sell Louis Vuitton. So the people that were buying Louis Vuitton before, they still got enough money to buy Louis Vuitton. They're not buying it, not for financial reasons. They're not buying it because there's nobody to get dressed for. So he's rooting for you. <laughs> I guess indirectly, I help his industry. That's, that's really, that's, <laughs> if people can if people can dress fly to go to, to to restaurants, then it works for both of us. They're in the restaurant and they're buying clothes. Do we see designers and restaurants team up then to help each other? I mean, I don't know that. I I, I mean, look, I think it's there's always been a little bit of it. Um, you know, we've partnered with Todd Snyder a few different times. Um, I think that. Um, it would probably, the correct alignment would benefit the restaurant more than the clothing brand, I think. Like, if I did something with Virgil and Off-White, 
I think it would benefit my restaurants more because Virgil's so popular to be like, oh, we did something like everybody would be like, oh man, that must be a cool restaurant. I don't know that it's going to all of a sudden, because people like my restaurants, let me go buy that expensive shit. <laughs> I, I think it would, I think it would disproportionately benefit me than him. <laughs> I'm all for any, any support of restaurants imaginable. So, so bring it on Virgil, bring it on Louis Vuitton and Off-White. Um, <laughs> yeah i'm I'm all about them louis vuitton aprons let's go let's see it man let's see let's see those off-white uh kitchen shoes finally right <laughs> i love it our show's called takeaway only gabriel what's your big takeaway from being at work during this time oh wow that's a deep existential question my big takeaway is i'm going to give it to you from two different approaches Number one is, I, for anybody who wondered what government is supposed to do and what it's there for, this is it. This is why we should have government. This is why we need government. Unfortunately, on a federal level, our government is failing us. Fortunately, on a state and local level, our government is, is fighting for us. Uh, and I have a profound amount of appreciation and respect for what Cuomo has done during this time. Um, I think it has shown me that the imbalance that we always knew existed between landlords and tenants is more risky and oppressive than even we realized when we realized it. And the power to rebuild this city lies so narrowly in a few people's hands that are big time landlords. And I sit there and I think we constantly look at and celebrate wonderful stories of people making masks at home to donate restaurants making meals for first responders, the neighbor taking care of the other neighbor's kid because it's a single mom home and the mom works for MTA. Um, Schools pivoting to online education. There is beauty in the way that we've banded together and supported and philanthropy and retired nurses coming back to work. Where are the stories of the landlord saying, I'm going to show you how I'm going to help society. It's seemingly like everybody without means is helping each other. And a few people with absurd levels of wealth are doing a lot. People like Buffett and Gates and, and Rob, like there is a lot of philanthropy, but landlords, you manage the fabric of our city. It's very simple. If you want there to be a city that resembles a New York City, you're going to have to be okay for a long period of time, 12, 18 months of making a lot less money than you'd like to. And I'll tell you what, all the people that you're giving a break to, they're going to make a lot less money than they would like to. If you help me survive, I'm not going to be getting rich from it. I'll be making less money. You make less money and everybody makes less money landlords fix this it's like it's really long-term view is necessary here the other thing is man i got two kids it's been amazing 
having the privilege to spend breakfasts, coffees, and dinner, and games every single day with these boys, with my wife, in this moment of pause has certainly not been all negative. There's been a lot of beauty and joy in my home, and I'm grateful to my wife and my children for that. And I'm grateful to you for being here and and sharing important messages. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Thank you, buddy. Stay handsome. That was Gabriel Stolman. You can follow him on Instagram at Gabe Stolman. Thank you so much for listening. Takeaway Only is produced by Casey Kahn, Rob Corso, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our logo is by Reynald Philippe at Beeples. Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Kristen Millar, Antoine Ricardou, Raphael Weil, and to the whole team at Welcome. Check out their important community building work at welcomeconference.org. We're back tomorrow. This is Takeaway Only.